Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Dominican Dimensions, a half hour of lively discussion about Catholic issues from a Dominican perspective, featuring the friars from St. Patrick Church in Columbus. And now, Dominican Dimensions. Welcome to the Dominican Dimensions, a half hour of lively discussion about Catholic issues from a Dominican perspective. My name is Father Peter Tottleman, and I'm a friar at St. Patrick Parish in Columbus. And today I'm joined in the studio by Father John Corbett and Brother Irenaeus Dunlevy. Let's start with a prayer. Hail Mary, full, full of, of grace, grace, the Lord, Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. So today we thought we'd talk about identities. Uh, when we look around the world today, we see the news, we see people around us, we see people who are fixated on different identities that they have. So uh, you can think of like the LGBT movement, you can think of uh, different um, identities in terms of race, class, gender, things like this. Uh, people are, are, are very strongly attached to these sort of groupings. And uh, we want to kind of look at what's behind that, because, of course, uh, it's something that a lot of us deal with on a regular basis. Um, there's a writer, Mary Eberstadt, who has a book out called Primal Screams, who kind of analyzes this phenomenon about why people are so attached to different identities uh, in our culture and what that tells us about our culture. And uh, Father John Corbett had a lot of thoughts about uh, this issue and uh kind of um, has some insights into what Mary Eberstadt had to say. So what were, you, what were you thinking about this issue, Father Corbett? Well, the first thing is the, the fact that she documents um, of the, of the uh, quality of discussion that you'll find on campuses today. Uh, what marks the kind of the quality of the discussions that you have on campuses is that they're not really discussions. Sure. They are assertions and counter-assertions. You know, it's as though uh, they weren't really interested in arguing about a truth, which might be uh, contested by someone else on the basis of evidence or reason. It's really not so much an assertion of the mind judging how reality is, um, it's really more an assertion of what should be or what must be. In other words, they talk more in the imperative than the indicative mood. It's kind of competing moral outrages. Yeah, yeah. It's a competing. It's competing, and it's moral outrage, and it's uh, basically, um, as I say, it's, uh, in the imperative mood. Now, where does that come from? Uh, it it doesn't come from outrage at people saying something that's demonstrably false. We talk about fake news or sure. uh, fake narratives. Uh, but the outrage against that would be traceable to the uh, untruthfulness of, the, of what's being presented. Yeah. But this is subtly different. It's not outrage against an untruth that any impartial observer could judge to be an untruth. It's really more uh, a statement of an aggrieved person who uh, who claims not that what has been said is false, but that what has been said is offensive to me and mine. It's yeah. uh, it's a reaction to not a false proposition, but uh, a reaction to an assault, 
Okay. Absolutely. So people feel assaulted, and, and they feel assaulted not primarily as individuals, uh, but as members of a group. Sure. My group has been victimized uh, as a representative of this, that, or the other subsection of society that has been historically oppressed. I rise up in the name of these people, my people, and I demand, not ask for, but demand redress. So so it's really a a matter of um, people who are aggrieved believing that they are speaking um, righteous truth to power. And there really isn't any room for debate in this uh, uh, environment. You either surrender or agree to whatever it is they're saying, or you are immediately identified as an enemy. Now, this is different, it seems to me. You saw uh, glimpses of this during the Vietnam War, where uh, if you took one side or another, you were uh, not so much factually right or factually wrong as a member of an offending group. The pigs, the hippies, the, yeah. the, uh, uh, the racists, the, uh, the warmongers. It was the Wall Street profiteers. You are a member of an offending group and therefore need to be not simply castigated but removed. Yeah. Speaking as a Dominican, I find this behavior kind of put off-putting and problematic, right? Yeah. Because you know it's, it's it's real different than how we were trained. You know, you know, you think about like uh, medieval theologians or Saint Thomas Aquinas, where there's a very careful back and forth of arguments, right? Mm. And um, <clears throat> we're kind of moving away from that uh, to moving to a, towards a more form of moral outrage, um, because you know if if somebody's just thinking wrong. It's hard to get angry at somebody just because you think that they made a mistake in their reasoning. Um, but when somebody is actually like trying to threaten your identity, then it actually um, raises up the hackles of moral outrage. Because mm-hmm. right, I think to have uh, a scholastic, you know, dialectical debate, there has to be like the foundation of um, being open to the truth, being willing to change your position as a result of this process of you know, engaging and discussing. But because this issue of identity, and if we're maybe to pull up a particular instance of it, you know, there's gender identity now or those who identify themselves based upon their sexual desires, um, there is a vulnerability, I think, um, these people who claim their identity based upon these, um, these issues have that is a bit different in which they're not rooted in a deeper identity, and therefore they find their very existence threatened by this conversation or this disagreement which you bring to the table. Sure. And therefore that, that common foundation of being open to the truth or being willing to change your position yeah. isn't there because there's an existential threat. Yeah. Well, it's, it's almost like there's, there's sort of two, two components to this. First, first there's the idea that um, – you know, the classical idea is the truth is something that I discover, and consequently, it's something that we discover together, mm-hmm. right? Whereas now it's sort of like the truth is something that I create, mm-hmm. right? 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 That's one side of it. But then the other side of it is is sort of a larger breakdown of, of social solidarity, right? Right. Uh, cultural identities, right? So like 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 if I come from like a a, a rich social network, you know, and I'm I'm accustomed to discovering the truth. 
with other people, it's much more easy to, to have sort of basic norms of civility that we're used to. Uh, but now it seems to me that um, if we're isolated and all we have is truth that we construct and identities that we construct, if somebody goes after, quote unquote, our truth, it breaks our world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and Mary Aberstadt in her book uh, notices this phenomenon, first of all, and then she, she uh, proposes a um, uh, a cause or an, a deeper root behind the, these this cacophony of voices. She says that it can be traceable to the sexual revolution, <laughs> uh, that um, what you need as a child in order to form a stable identity is is stability in the family. You have to know who your mother is and who your father is. You need to know who your brother is, your sister is, your uncles, your aunts. You need a place. Yeah. You, you, you need a place to be. Uh, and you need a group of people who recognize you as one of their own. One of the things, and I, I think it's at the very heart of the sexual revolution is a lack of permanency. The, yeah. the sexual revolution is defined by we meet tonight and I can pack up my bags uh, tomorrow and congratulate you and you congratulate me on our adulthood where we are able to, you know, uh, meet, depart, and be none the worse for wear. Uh, the problem is, of course, that we're not really made that way. We're not yeah. really made to live like that. Uh, that, that that we by nature desire a home, a place to be, and that sex is really connected to that yeah. purpose, the, to bring about uh, not only new people, but a place for those new people to be, to grow, to nourish, mm-hmm. to be flourishing, and so forth. But if you have a sexual revolution, which we've had, you've gotten rid of the idea of permanency of sexual relations between a man and a woman, and you get rid of that, you get rid of the stable place that children can find their place in. And so now, who are they? Where do they come from? They Well, they had a father once. They see him once a month. Uh, they had a mother, or they had a combination of birth mother and caregiving mother. Which one is the real mother? You know, there's really no stable place for them to be, and so there's a... Uh, a kind of an existential confusion. Part of the uh, intense grasping of identity that we see in these groups of of young people is, uh, she argues, the fruit of that kind of instability. Yeah, if you're on a, if you've been shipwrecked and there's only one plank of wood left, you're going to grab onto that plank of wood and hang on to it for dear life. It's all you've got. Sure. So in these campuses where there's a need to shout down a speaker of with a different point of view than your own, uh, it's not the fact of disagreement that's remarkable. What's remarkable is the intensity of the effort to shut out and shut down the voice that differs from your own. That's like hanging on to a plank. Uh, it's the only thing that keeps you from drowning. This identity that you've constructed is the only thing that uh, keeps you afloat. And if it's threatened or lost by whatever the, seer, the other speaker is saying, uh, you will react to it as you would to a mortal threat. 
Oh, absolutely. You're listening to The Dominican Dimensions, a half hour of lively discussion about Catholic issues from a Dominican perspective. My name is Father Peter Tottlebin, and I'm a friar at St. Patrick's Parish in Columbus, and I'm joined in the studio by Father John Corbett and Brother Irenaeus Dunleavy, and we've been talking today about <clears throat> identities and why people have contested identities, why conversation in our culture uh, seems to break down like over the question of identity, you know, where where is sort of rational or civil discourse gone? And we've been kind of looking at the roots of that in the nature of sort of the, the, the kind of larger social breakdown that's happened in our culture, right? Um, I was thinking that, you know, um, Father Corbett brought up the example of the sexual revolution, and I think that's the most outstanding example of the 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 sort of larger promise in the modern world of of a sort of seductive false hope of a certain kind of freedom, right? So we've kind of been trained to believe that um, what's a necessary condition for happiness is to be completely free of restraints and, and commitments from the outside and to be able to be radically open to choose the good that we set for ourselves. Right. You know, I choose for myself and I create for myself what's good. And I need to be radically open and unencumbered uh, in the pursuit of that good in order to be really happy. And that's the only way to really be free. Mm. Right. And, uh, you know, consequently, we look at uh, life and we think about life as um, we think about being free uh, and, and, and being happy as a, a prerequisite for that is not having any commitments prior to choice. Like mm-hmm. we can't have any unchosen binding commitments. And if you propose it to people, they say, well, yeah, yeah, that's how you be free and consequently how you be happy and set your own life. But it seems to me that the paradox of it is, is that you, you can't be happy without these sort of ba- binding commitments by being bound in certain ways. Right. Um, it's what gives you the ability to go out into the world is precisely the fact that you have, people who have your back no matter what you know you're just you're just bound with them and you always have a place that's like your home base you have the secure base from which you can venture out right and it seems to me like what we're saying is that um this sort of breakdown of these sort of binding social commitments leaves you with nothing else other than um identities to cling to yes i yeah, I think that's uh I think that's right. It's an interesting uh feature of I think modern uh, contemporary thought that the distinction between uh speculative reason and practical reason is broken down. Sure. Um and practical speculative reason is the basically the idea that our minds are measured by reality. The the reality makes the mind yeah. when speculative reason is working well. Practical reason is when the mind makes the world. Yeah. And, of course, there are lots of ways in which our mind makes the world. <clears throat> technology is a way in which we do that. Uh, gene splicing is an instance of sure. uh, technology is a, a, an example of that. But if all of re, if all reason is basically practical reason, then all of reality is basically subject to our will. Right. Uh, it's simply it's not something we discover. It's something we construct. And uh, by definition, 
there ought not to be or should not be any limitations on the kind of thing we can construct because by definition it depends upon us as creator. Yeah. There's nothing prior to us that commands us or informs us. Uh, this ultimately means that, um, that the world really is a construction of will, yeah. not wisdom. Yeah. And that means that, that, that uh, the basic relationships in the world that we're going to encounter are relationships in which our wills either harmonize around something because we happen to share a good, or they clash with each other, uh, and in which case the, uh, the only uh, possible solution is through a, a kind of a, a superior force. Not superior wisdom, but yep. superior force. So that gets into marriage. Who's to say that marriage is just between a man and a woman? Yep. We construct marriage. It's our construction. We can construct it any way we like. That's the thinking. You can't you can't debate the truth. You can't discover the truth because there it. there really is no there is no truth to debate or discover except and what you make. Consequently, there's just competing sources of power. That's and right. And whoever can manipulate the various sources of power wins. And so all discussions really can be are mutual assertions of will to power. That's right. Uh, Marx. <clears throat> um, this is all foreshadowed in Marxist theory. Sure. You know. Uh, where Marx loses the distinction between practical and speculative reason, and it's the root of the idea that all uh, all justifications or explanations of power, other than in terms of power, are ideologies. They're they're falsifications yeah. of reality designed to mask conflictual power relations. Yeah. But there's no there's no legitimizing wisdom in power structures yeah. of society. It's only raw competition. Right, and he actually considered knowledge to be rooted in the in the making of things, so that the actual anthropology, the, the philosophy of the human person that he adopted was that, um, you know, humanity is collective, and we only come to understand humanity by man fabricating or producing, you know, objects by his own will, and over the course of history, this is leading towards some sort of idea of an absolute. So any implication, so say the Catholic position, that would conflict uh, with Marx's understanding of the world, that we're creatures. God created us. We have a fixed, given nature, which we operate within, that has a particular perfection to it. That position would be seen as something inhibiting the actual development of humanity, that it would be um, stifling the revolutions that are supposed to take place, the technology that's meant to be introduced, uh, the new um, forms of humanity that are meant to come in through this development, this process and time of rising up, making, uh, and creating the world in our image. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of a lot of proponents of this this new mode of discourse will say, will even claim, you know, we're just unmasking what's always already been going on all along, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, they'll they'll sort of defend it in that way. Um, maybe, maybe it's worth asking uh, for our sakes, um, and it's it's a good question to ask. Like, how do we be the church in the midst of this? Like you know, what is what is sort of what is the role of be what is the role of the church in in this um, thing? Do, how do we not get co opted by this? How do we sort of like maintain a culture of like respectful 
truth seeking, right? Because it seems like it seems like if you're going to believe in the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the Word in whom all things are made, uh, you know, you 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 have to believe in a a a, a more traditional way of looking at the truth, where it's something that we discover, we learn, we know together. Uh, if you're going to be a part of a church, you have to um, have some understanding of uh, um, building relationships that we're sort of bound by, but we didn't necessarily choose, you know, things like this. How do we be the church in the midst of a cultural climate like that? Right, because you're, you're pointing out that one of the difficulties here is that in disagreeing with somebody, we're establishing a position uh, which is threatening to them, yeah. in which they, in hearing us disagree, immediately associate it with a um, animosity yeah. that we possess towards them. And so a big obstacle to just opening up a fruitful dialogue or a discussion or per- common pursuit of the truth is to convince our people yeah. who disagree with us or adopt these positions that we actually have benevolence towards them. Yeah. We're seeking their good. Yeah. It's it's because it's always a complicated question because we're kind of dealing like at the at the level of axioms like of first principles and basic approaches to acting and discussing right so like you know everybody else kind of uh, sort of will accept this idea that this is how, what discourse is meant to be these sort of competing power things but we're saying like no even that very first principle on which all this discussion is predicated is one that we actually disagree with. But it can then come out to seem like we're just another voice in the cacophony, like we're just asserting our own will to power. Right. That's exactly what it looks like to them. Mm -hmm. That's why I doubt whether the uh, most effective strategy is argument. Uh, Sure. um, I think the most effective approach is simply to be happy. Sure. I mean, to to live a life of uh, relationship with the Lord and relationship with one another, which is stable, charitable, and that and do that enough and people will think you're up to something, you know. Uh, what do they have? What do they have? They seem happy. This isn't fair. Why should they be happy? Let's find out. Uh, yeah. Let's find out about it. You know, and Mary Eberstadt's book, as you, you brought up in Primal Screams, is this issue with identity is really a result of the sexual revolution or the breakdown of the family. Mm-hmm. And so, in a sense, I think, like, in having a happy family and living a good Christian life, in a way, it's sort of a, a beacon to those who are on the driftwood That's seeking right. their identity. They can see a, a authentic living out of that true identity when the in the church family. church is authentically being itself, uh, other people will know that they have a place to be. Yeah. There's a calling. That, that's what the calling to the church means, the calling to find yourself yourself in the body of Christ in the network of relations. Yeah, Pope John Paul II once called the family the school of love or the school of charity. It's sort it's sort of like where we, we where we learn the skill of of how to live with one another. You know, and of course, that's a a foreshadowing of the lar- the larger family which is the church. And I think um in a certain sense, it does. It's a matter that does transcend argument. Like you almost have to live in a way that invites questions. Mm-hmm. Of That's you, right, right. And and I think it's one of the beautiful things that we have about our faith, and one of the wonderful things that we have about our faith is every time that the Catholic faith is lived out well, it's undeniably ennobling. Right. Like you look at the things it creates, like whether it's art or architecture or whatever, you look at the lives of the people and like what they do. You know, when the Catholic faith is lived out well, 
uh, it, 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 it takes on forms that are just always ennobling and in a way that, in a way that can't be sort of argued against, mm-hmm. you know, um, you see someone like Mother Teresa. Well, there are now people who try to argue against Mother Teresa, but you know, you, but you see, but, but for, for for lots of people, you know, like like you know, the, the the moral witness or the beautiful witness of someone like Mother Teresa is 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 you can't really argue against it. There's just something there, um, and you almost have to sort of like, since it's a problem with axioms, you almost have to believe so that you can understand. Right. That's right. It's almost like you have to be initiated into the form of life. And as you become initiated into the form of life, uh, you sort of understand the point of it. It's kind of like it's, it's like the virtues in general. Right. Like you understand the point of of being virtuous as you become more virtuous. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, There's also uh, this is kind of a probably not the most hopeful thing to say. But you can always hope that things get worse. too. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, you have the example of the church. Uh, the best argument for the church is the saints, right? Yeah. But also, uh, people living, if you live outside that framework long enough, things begin to fall apart, and they are falling apart. Eventually, you may hit bottom, yeah. and the society may decide they really do need something yeah. different. And, and I think that the, 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 our own political culture can't long survive no. this toxicity. And well, it's sort of like Pope Francis calling the church a field hospital, right? You know, I mean, there, there are going to be people who kind of get ground down by this culture. You know what I mean? And, and part of, I think, the mission of the church or being the church is to be there for people who, who are ready to listen because they're just ground down. Like you're just, you're just exhausted by it all. And you're like, I'm ready to try something radically different. Right. Like there's a – it's sort of the, the rock bottom principle, I think, that if one's going to change – you know, from an addiction or something, they have to hit rock bottom and sort of have an intrinsic motivation in a certain sense. This is being applied to the culture is like to where it's so, you know, shattered by the lies that have been spread that people just look around and say, this can't be it. This can't be <laughs> Catholicism can't be worse than what I'm going through now. Yeah. So I might as well give it a shot. Give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> At any rate, thank you for joining us today for the Dominican Dimension. My name is Father Peter Tottleben, and I'm a friar at St. Patrick Parish in Columbus. And I've been joined in the studio by Father John Corbett and Brother Irenaeus Dunlevy. And let's end in prayer. O light of the church, teacher of truth, rose of patience, ivory of chastity, freely you have poured forth the waters of wisdom. Preacher of grace, unite us with the blessed. Amen. Amen. Dominican Dimensions is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Dominican Dimensions and all of our locally produced programs are available at stgabrielradio.com. 